Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Sam Strickland. Sam is principal of the Dustin School, a Northampton-based school teaching those between the ages of 4 and 19. Sam, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you ever so much for having me and uh, I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us, Sam. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So looking at that word leader, just aside, first and foremost, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the word leader means so many different things to so many different people. But from my, my own perspective, um, I, I the starting point with being a leader is that you need to to know and understand yourself uh, before you can then go on to lead others. Um, I think you need to understand that, that leadership is not about you and your ego and what you're doing, but actually enabling other people to do their job. Um, simultaneously, I would argue that leadership is a, and being a leader is actually about protecting the people below you, you know, your staff as a whole, um, from, dare I say it, nonsense and chaff and kind of white noise that gets in the way of them being able to do their core job. And if I put that in a, a school context, I would take being a leader as somebody who allows the core job to be the core job that the teachers can teach and the teachers can engage with their pupils and not have to worry about um, endless red tape that really gets in the way of, of what actually we're trying to achieve with our pupils. Uh, again, I think it, you know, in a school context, the magic happens in the classroom the progress comes from what takes place in the classroom the the learning the 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 knowledge rich approach and ultimately academic outcomes and results all come from what happens in the classroom so my view in terms of a leader is is being able to protect uh, the staffing body uh, to be able to do that core job as effectively and efficiently um, as is possible and provide a very clear sense of vision uh, and um, underpinning values that are lived and breathed uh, within that. Uh, and, and probably the other part, I would argue, is that leading and being a leader is about inspiring people as well and inspiring the next wave of leaders um, within the school body, the staffing body. Um, you know, best will in the world, I'm not going to be the principal forever and the head and the assistant heads won't be in those positions forever and ever and ever. Uh, so who's going to be the next wave of people that can move up through the ranks to move the school on to the next level, whenever that may well be. So, so I think there's a number of, of, of facets to being a leader, but kind of to summarise it really, it's, it's knowing yourself, leading others, inspiring others, and allowing people to do their job without unnecessary red tape. There are a lot of important things to take away from that. And that first point, knowing yourself and being self-aware is incredibly important because part of that is recognising that as human beings, even in leadership roles, we're not infallible. We do have limitations and we do make mistakes and have shortcomings. Mm. And that links very nicely into that key L word, learning, doesn't it? Which is what education, of course, is all about. It's not really possible, is it, to develop into a good leader, as it were, without having that experience of learning, maybe suffering one or two setbacks Mm. and sort of embracing that as a learning curve? No, absolutely. And 
mistakes are really just something that should actually be embraced and very much the attitude and approach I have with my senior team um, is that, you know, including myself, we're all going to make mistakes at some point and, you know, don't beat yourself up about it. Be open and honest and transparent with me if you do as, as, uh, as your principal. Uh, but we'll think about more importantly, what have we learned from that? How do we move forward and how do we correct that mistake? But that then should run all the way through the, the entire organization, through the teachers and through the pupils, that mistakes are something to be embraced. And actually, we could probably learn more through making mistakes than by getting everything right all the time. Mm. And um, you also talked about the importance of leaders to inspire as well. And I think that some of the most inspirational leaders out there can be people who are teachers, mentors, people who we encounter in the day to day who have a real influence in our lives. And those are the sorts of people that can often sort of fall by the wayside in terms of recognition because there's a temptation to associate leadership, I think, culturally in this country with sort of mm. the public eye, with the likes of politics and celebrity and sports, for example. Is that something you'd find yourself agreeing with? Yeah. I mean, I, I describe everybody, every member of staff as a leader within uh, the, the context of the school. A class teacher is a leader. They're a leader of the 25, 30 pupils that are in front of them from one lesson to the next, and they've got to lead and inspire those pupils um, in very much the same way that being the leader of the school, I have to inspire the staff and the pupils as a whole. Uh, so, so I think leadership runs all the way. It's not just something that's um, you know, a trait of a few kind of a select oligarchs, so to speak, uh, you know, a few public high-profile people. It's, it's something that has to run to everybody because ultimately everybody is a leader and when you're at the uh, the top of the tree in a leadership position such as yourself mm. as it were um where do you draw your inspiration from is there anybody that you look up to because essentially there's nobody to really direct you as such so um is there somebody who maybe has um, an influence and experiences that you've had that have maybe helped develop you as a leader yeah obviously your own experience through the course of your career uh, and the opportunities that you, you're given through your career, I would argue they've, they've absolutely helped to shape my thinking in terms of where I am now. Um, a lot of reading, uh, attending uh, educational conferences and research head events, uh, which are, are championed by Tom Bennett. Um, a lot of the kind of curricula and curriculum thinking that, that I have has been shaped by um, Christine Council, uh, who trained me many years ago. Um, but equally, even now sat in the hot seat, I'm in close c- uh, contact and connection with about five other head teachers, and we will use each other as sounding boards to bounce uh, ideas, problems, solutions off one another. So I think it's, it's kind of a cocktail, really, of some key influential people throughout my career, an array of different experiences throughout my career of having worked my way up through the ranks. Uh, and being a, a senior leader in different guises in different establishments, um, coupled with a network of people that I can, can confide in, in in the current climate. And moving on now to uh, current affairs, of course, um, mm. leadership has really been put to the test um, in the present time, hasn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less. Yeah. Um, from an education perspective, how has it been sort of adapting as a school to the challenges that that's brought about? Because I can imagine that that's been tremendously difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many different kind of phases to um, to what we've experienced. There's been the 
the build-up to the inevitable, which has been the closing of schools in, a, in, a, in an outward sense, that schools are closed, but they're not closed. We've actually been open throughout this entire pandemic and lockdown phase. So there's, there's been, on that one front, leading your, your, your community, for want of a better phrase, to that stage where you formally lock the doors. There's been uh, a degree of having to be incredibly agile and responsive to um, changes at the drop of a hat and guidance and documentation from the Department of Education that come out at speed, and we've had to respond at speed. Um, I think about the key worker scheme as one example, and, and absolutely rightly, all schools have remained open to support key worker and vulnerable pupils throughout this pandemic. Um, equally, the, the distance learning has been a huge challenge. Um, that, and there, obviously, there are varying guises of what that looks like across the land, whether it's live, live online uh, lessons, whether it's pre-recorded lessons, whether it's um, workbooks, exercise books, worksheets, uh, re, you know, reading lists. Every school's had its own kind of connotational hybrid model. Uh, and then the introduction of Oak National, uh, offering obviously a free curriculum uh, for teachers to tap into. Again, in terms of that distance approach, it's not just been the distance learning that we've had to navigate our way through, but from a, the perspective of being um, the principal of the school, it's been that distance leadership as well of trying to ensure that I'm in constant touch and communication with my most immediate senior team, kind of my inner cabinet, for want of a better phrase, but also ensuring that I've maintained the confidence um, and clarity of communication with my staff as a whole, as well as the community at large. Uh, and a challenge now as we kind of move into the last few weeks before the end of the academic year uh, has been the, the widening of our doors to welcome, as an all-through school, our early years pupils, our year one pupils, our year 10, our year 12 uh, pupils. But then also just what do we do for the, the other pupils who aren't in the building at the moment in those other year groups? And then having an eye on what we do for uh, examination results days and then September itself as well. So there's, there's been a real need to be able to respond at speed in an agile manner, but also to maintain really good and really clear and effective communication with our community as a whole. Uh, but also having kind of a, an eye on a future that's still really um, uncertain and unpaved. And whilst you know, I fully appreciate the Prime Minister has announced uh, that he wants schools to return in full in September. We still haven't got the devil in the detail and the clarity of what that will look like. Um, and that's not meant as a criticism. That's just a, a statement of fact of where we are at this current point in time. So there's a degree of kind of holding your nerve and waiting, but also sort of trying to plan as much as you can within the parameters that you have. And then the, the great unknown is what might happen uh, in the fullness of time as we move through to the, the tail end of this calendar year and whether there would be a second wave or a second spike coupled with you know the normal flu season what that might bring as well so so there's there's been a degree of trying to be um quite assured when you're communicating with staff but also very honest as well which is we only know what we know uh, so it's been a real uh, balancing act and, and utilizing technology in a way that we've never done before the so zoom and t uh, microsoft team meetings as two examples we really have to embrace that as a profession um, in a way that we may not have done otherwise. And, and actually, that's probably been a bit of a positive in many regards.
Mm. I can imagine it's been a real learning curve, this experience as well, just having to adapt to sort of that leadership from a distance, keeping the communication yeah. channels open from afar, as it were. And um, thinking about sort of what the uh, the new normal as a whole might well bring mm. with it over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, just before we wrap things up on the programme today, Sam, what yep. do you think um, that period holds for yourself and for the Dustin School? And what do you really hope to achieve during that time? Yeah, I mean, as we move forward, the hope... We need to recalibrate our school culture with our pupils. Um, I would argue our school culture going into uh, the lockdown was really strong and really secure and the school was moving forward in great strides. Um, but we, as we come back, we, we, we need to reestablish that, you know, as you would do after any substantial break with your pupils. And this is a break here that we've never experienced before. Uh, my, my hope is that we can settle our school community um, quickly and, and, and hopefully that... <laughs> Things will be disruption-free as we move forward. That's the that's the the, you know, the greatest ideal uh, is that we, you know, when we come back in September, that's it. We won't have to close again um, as a, as a sector, not just as a school. Um, but obviously, you know, we remain to see what, what happens on that front. Um, I, I would I would hope actually, in some of the the things that we've learned over the the last three four months would be things like uh, how we conduct meetings um, remotely. Uh, I think to a number of the meetings we have as a profession, uh, whether that's at a local or a national level, and you spend more time on the road commuting you know, to venue A uh, and back than you actually do in the meeting itself. And hopefully something we'll take forward as we, as we go from here is the use of technology to speed that up and to sharpen that up. Um, we can almost get messages and meetings done within 15 to 20 minutes through Zoom or Teams as opposed to half a day when you factor in travelling time. So I hope that becomes part of the new norm. I also think about teacher professional development. There's been a wave of professional development that's been online uh, and certainly been pushed through Twitter as a platform over the last three to four months. Uh, and there have been so many companies, Seneca as an example, Teaching School Alliances, Research Ed, that have published uh, or released, rather, sorry, a talk a day uh, by a leading person uh, in the profession. Uh, and I think that, is, in many regards, is a game changer for how we move forward in the future. So if we want to hear, uh, you know, Person X talking about curriculum, well, the video is there. We don't need to spend a thousand pounds sending somebody out for half a morning. And hope kind of Chinese whisper style, they cascade it back, at, at, you know, effectively to their team. That video is there for us all to see. And it's about perhaps um, carefully strategically crafting the time out in the building with, the, with all of the relevant staff as opposed to one person going out. Um, and, and also the other aspect is how we engage our pupils in a distance learning sense, perhaps through homework or holiday work. Um, or transition work using some of those online platforms in the future. I think that they've probably got far more um, merit than perhaps we gave them credit for. Mm, certainly going to be interesting times to see how the profession adapts um, for sure and you know Indeed. given how um, informative it's been discussing this with you uh, today Sam I actually think it would be fantastic um, if in future we could have you back on the program at some point in the uh, the next year just Thank to see you. exactly what does change in that time between and catch up as to how things are getting on at the school as well. 
Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. I think so as well, um, because it's been a real pleasure having you um, on the programme with us today. And I really do appreciate the time taken to join us. And most importantly, Sam, until we do um, touch base again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. Because even though we are seeing things return to some form of normality, as it were, we're still not completely out of the woods yet. No, indeed. And, and same to you as well. You know, take very good care and stay safe. And thank you for having me. And for those tuning into this and listening, do look after yourselves, stay home where you can and be sensible because it really, really does make a difference in saving lives and keeping people out of hospital. That was Sam Strickland speaking, principal of the Dustin School there. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can, uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
uh, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.